He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you bring us in a fresh way to our knees before the cross of Calvary? Would you remind us that we do not stand proudly before you on the basis of contrast to other sinners or credentials that we have accrued. Now we are welcome in your sight, truly, and only because of the blood of Jesus shed for sinners like us. Thank you that we can come to you with confidence because of his merit given to us as a gift of grace. Help us now to humble ourselves in a fresh way so we can receive even greater gratitude of what we have received. In Jesus' name, amen. He was in agony. He had been trying everything he could think of. He had been praying as hard as he could, serving with all of his might by sheer self-discipline and following the models of others before him, he was trying to do what he was supposed to do. But it was evident to him, and he knew to everyone around him, that he was not measuring up. His hands trembled when he tried to take up the elements of the Eucharist. And when he got down on his knees to pray, he just knew it was as if his prayers were bouncing right off the ceiling back to him. Maybe his dad was right. Maybe he wasn't fit to be a monk. Maybe his virtue was fit for that other profession, being a lawyer. But on the other hand, something was changing. He was spending all his time praying and serving, but more recently, reading. Uh, not reading the doctors of the church and the priests and the magistrates. No, 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 but reading the scriptures themselves in the original Greek and Hebrew when he could. Uh, reading again and again. And something was stirring within him. It was as if the Psalms were singing inside his heart. He found himself coming back again for another helping. And then the breakthrough came. Uh, he had been teaching those scriptures to others when he came to the book of Romans and chapter one, verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
with those words, something was kindled that had been uh, brewing for some time in the heart of the man known as Martin Luther. Uh, He rediscovered something that lamentably, for a long time, it seemed like the Church of Christ had forgotten. That salvation is not based upon our merit, but it's by faith alone and grace alone in Christ alone. Uh, That truth that so easily could be forgotten down through the ages is even something that now we living 500 plus years after the Reformation are in danger of potentially forgetting ourselves week after week and day after day as we find our own hearts preaching to us a different message, a message of our own self-sufficiency, a message of our self-esteem, a message of our credentials, and yes, even the contrast between us and other sinners. Which is why this morning it's only fitting that our passage in the book of Luke speaks directly to this prideful tendency and shows us that far from standing before God with our heads lifted high, only those who have been humbled by their sin will find their souls to be saved. Uh, That's the big idea this morning. A Reformation truth that's still true 506 years later. Only sinners that have been humbled before God will see their souls saved. It's something we need to hear and rehear if we are to find ourselves with the right posture before God, even as we come to him in our prayers. Uh, We'll see that from a parable that Jesus told Uh, Much like the one last week, a parable with vivid contrasts in it. Uh, We'll see that within that parable, two sections to it, uh, first 9 through 13. Two different postures of prayer. Two different ways you could approach God in prayer. Which lead to, secondly, two positions before God, verse 14. Two very different ways that we can relate to God. In all this, I'll hope that you will find the joy of humbling yourself before the almighty God to find the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get into that first section, 9 through 13, two postures in prayer. If you're with us last week, Jesus told the first of two parables following a sort of formula, both of them having to do with the same topic, that is prayer. You can see that formula in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Uh, Last week's parable did the very same thing in the first verse. It told you on the front end what it's about. In this case, it's Jesus telling a story for the benefit of some people who were trying to stand before God with heads held high. Now, the actual parable itself is rather simple. It's got just two characters to it and quite a punchline at the end of it. Uh, We're told in verse 10, these two different men go up to the temple to pray. Uh, One of them is the respectable one. That is a Pharisee. Now, to our ears, that word Pharisee has a really negative connotation, but back in Jesus' day, that wouldn't have been the case. Uh, Pharisees were known as being the religiously motivated, the pious ones of society. Uh, One of the historians of the day, Josephus, said of the Pharisees, uh, 
that they were known for their devotion and piety, and that as far as he could tell, they interpreted the law of God properly. Uh, that was, for the most part, what most people would have thought. There were undoubtedly some exceptions, but generally, if you thought of a Pharisee, you thought of a committed religious person. So it's no surprise that a Pharisee would find his way to the Temple Mount to pray, probably uh, for the daily prayers. And from there, we see him living up to the billing of what you would expect from a religiously committed person. Uh, he stands up, uh, goes to the Temple Mount, and he prays. His prayer starts off in a place that seems like humility. I thank you, God, starting with a note of thanksgiving. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Then he goes on to list out a group of people that were known for various types of sins. And this Pharisee goes on to say, he's not guilty of those sins, like those people are. I'm not an extortioner, which means he doesn't commit the sin of extortion. I'm not unjust. And the implication is that he must practice justice. I'm not an adulterer. Well, that must mean that he's someone who's faithful to his marital vows. Uh, but matched to that, he goes even further than that. He talks about not just the sins he doesn't commit, but a list of virtues that are his spiritual credentials. And frankly, the, he goes over and above what's expected of him. Uh, you can see that in verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The law only required that someone would fast at the high holy days. And yet for the truly religious people, there was this pattern of fasting twice a week. And like all the good Pharisees who wanted to be truly religious, he did that over and above what the law required. At the same time, his generosity went above and beyond what the law of God required. Uh, the law required that, he, that uh, Israelites give a tithe of some different parts of their income. Uh, but the Pharisees were in the habit of going beyond that. They would find other categories of their provision from God, whether that be the herbs in their garden that they grew. To, and they would give 10% of those unrequired types of income as well. So what we see here is a very religious man going to the religious place in order to pray, who doesn't commit any of the scandalous sins of society at that moment time, but on the other hand, goes over and above what's expected of him. He gives to God what's owed, and then he adds another heaping scoopful just to make sure. That all sounds pretty good. But that is until you go back and you look a little more carefully at the passage. Because uh, I don't think Jesus intends for us to take the Pharisee as a positive example in the slightest. Now, I don't think that's because the Pharisee is lying. Jesus gives us no indication that anything he says is untrue. But it's because the Pharisee exemplifies the very thing that Jesus wants to undermine. And that's spiritual pride. Uh, you can pick up on it when you look at the details. Uh, the Pharisee, we're told he goes up to the temple to pray and he's standing off by himself. See that in verse 11? 
Now, the Temple Mount was a pretty crowded place if you were going during the time of the prayers. So you would have had to work at it in order to get off and stand out from the crowd. Uh, perhaps there's more, less than a pure motivation for doing so. Maybe he doesn't just want a, a little bit of personal space, but he wants to stand out so he can see, be seen to be pious in his prayers. I think there's some evidence that this is likely what, uh, what he's doing because his prayer seems less directed toward God and more directed toward an audience that might be listening. The way that the prayer is phrased, he focuses on himself with the word I five times. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. There's even a little ambiguity in the grammar there about whether the way Jesus told the story, whether in fact we're supposed to understand that he's praying to God, or even if there might be a little wordplay that he's actually praying to himself. Whether that's right or not, I think undoubtedly this prayer is less concerned at how it'll be received in heaven and more concerned with how it'll be received with the people hearing it. Which makes that set of contrasts he does seem a little bit more like it's dripping with contempt. God, I thank you that I'm not like all these sinners around me. Uh, I thank you that I'm not an extortioner like that guy over there. I thank you that I'm not unjust like that guy. And of course, that I don't sleep around like who knows how many people in this crowd. But most of all, God, I thank you I'm not like well, that tax collector. Uh, the contrast is pretty obviously meant to differentiate him from all the other sinners that are beneath him. Now, if it's taken in this light, then I think also his list of spiritual qualifications are also really only proving his pride. Oh, sure, he fasts twice a week, gives 10% over and above what's required. But really, he does those things for all the wrong reasons. Uh, this is a man who is trying to hold his head up high as he strides into the court of heaven in prayer. Of course, Jesus has a separate example, uh, someone we're supposed to see as a contrast, and he is the exact opposite. That is the tax collector. Now, the tax collectors back then would have been the least likely people you would expect to find at the Temple Mount praying. Uh, that's because tax collectors are much worse than even our opinion of IRS agents today. Um, tax collectors were considered both traitors and crooks, and for good reason. Uh, the way the Romans collected taxes, they would uh, sell the right for someone to actually go and collect them. They would find a Jew who was willing to do the job, and they would give him authority to collect the amount that Rome was required to, from the citizens. And then they could also charge whatever additional fees and levies on top that they wanted. And if you think the fees and levies on top of your Airbnb order are bad, you've got nothing on what the tax collectors would do. They could fleece people legally and there was no recourse whatsoever. 
which meant their fellow Jews had reason to think, well, you're actually serving the oppressive Roman Empire and you're enriching yourself at our detriment. So tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst. Our modern analogy might be a drug dealer or a terrorist, uh, some sort of crook and traitor, uh, certainly someone that God must look down on like the rest of us do. But this particular tax collector dared to go to the place no one expected him to go, and that is to the Temple Mount to pray. Uh, but you notice almost immediately that when he goes to pray, his posture in prayer is very, very different. We're told also that he stands far off. The way that's written, it's probably referring to him being in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, there's something that tells him that the state of his soul is such that he should not try and draw close to God and go into the inner courts of the temple like the rest of the Jews. While he's standing off from God, he refuses to have the standard posture for praying, instead humbles himself physically. Um, back then, people didn't pray the way we do, at least the expectation was. When we pray, it's typically to, to bow our heads, maybe you clasp your hands. I think that's a fitting, humble way to pray. Uh, but back then, the expectation was when you prayed to God, you lifted your head up to heaven with your palms upward which makes the description of him not being willing to lift his eyes up to heaven, but instead looking down, it makes that come across as a marker of his contrition and humility. Matched with that is another physical marker of what's happening in his heart. He's beating his chest. If you were a Jew back then and you wanted to show that you were broken over your sins, uh, you might tear your beard or rend your clothing or you might beat your breast. It was a physical way to show your sorrow over the guilt that you knew was rightfully resting on your soul. Uh, but most of all, the way we know that his posture toward the Lord is different are his words. It is a simple prayer, not meant for an audience of people around him, but meant for the only audience that matters, for God himself in heaven. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You cannot ask for two more different postures to try and approach God in prayer than the tax collector and the Pharisee. Well, that's the parable. Where's the punchline? Well, the punchline is which prayer is it that God looks on positively? And that brings us to our second point this morning, two positions that you can have before God. Jesus wraps it up in verse 14. He tells us which of the two finds their prayer heard. Verse 14, I tell you this, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Well, that would have been an extremely shocking punchline to this parable. The tax collector is justified? Uh, justified is a legal term. 
It is what happens when the judge declares someone innocent, cleared of all charges. According to Jesus, the, this good-for-nothing, crooked traitor, after just one prayer, he finds his way back to his house, utterly cleared before the highest court of all, the court in heaven. Now, that declaration that someone is justified is really what's at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Is How is it that someone can be declared innocent before God? And this passage, I think, very clearly from the lips of Jesus, teaches what other passages of Scripture do. That you are justified not on the basis of your merit or the good works that you accrue or doing enough religious rituals. No, but you find justification and innocence before God through an act of humble faith. Now, how is that possible? How could God just clear someone like that? Well, Jesus explains it with a short proverb there in the second half of verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you pay attention to your Bible, this will actually be no surprise. Uh, God is in the business of raising up the lowly and knocking the proud and tall down onto their knees. Uh, that was the case back in the time of Israel's first king. Remember King Saul? He was a tall, proud king who was brought low because of his sin and pride. On the other hand, David, who started from the lowly beginnings, because of his humility of heart and God's unmerited grace and favor, he was raised up to be the righteous, good king that Israel needed. Uh, back in Luke's gospel, we've seen the same dynamic playing out. Uh, God is in the business of using the lowly and unexpected. Uh, how about that teenage pregnancy in the life of Mary, who somehow found favor before God and a station of life that no one would have expected anything much from her? Or about Jesus himself? He comes from the middle of nowhere, out in the sticks, just a carpenter's son. And yet somehow he is the son of God that will be lifted up to the throne of his father. Uh, this is the way God's economy works. He humbles the proud. And he lifts up the lowly. So that none of us would be able to boast before his presence. Now all of that means that in our hearts there is one of two ways that we can try and relate to God. We can either try to do it based on our merit or like the tax collector, we can try and relate to him based on his mercy. Uh, if you doubt for a second that your heart is capable of the sort of pride that I'm talking about, uh, maybe you're like me. Uh, maybe your memory seems to get especially sharp when you have a really good argument with somebody. I can remember some real doozies down through the years. Uh, in particular, a lot of them are with my brother. He's older than me by two years. And we argued growing up about pretty much anything. Um, even to this day, we can quickly find ourselves uh, squabbling over little tiny things and big, really significant things. Uh, you know, something really interesting happens every time I have an argument with my brother. Uh, after the argument's over and we've parted our ways... 
I find myself thinking about the argument afterward. I'm replaying it blow by blow. He says this, and I say this, he says this. You know the funny thing? When I replay my arguments with my brother in my head, I always win. I always come up with a zinger at the last line, even if I didn't think of it in the actual argument. Or My point of view sounds so much better than his did. Does your mind do that? Does your heart do that? Now, why might that be? Well, maybe it's because within each of us is a heart that wants so badly to show that it is justified. Uh, we want to use contrast and credentials to show, well, surely we're the good ones. We've not done the bad things and we have done the good things. Surely we're the smart ones. We're the wise ones. We're the righteous ones. Uh, of course, this is the way that the wisdom of the world and every religion aside from the gospel of Jesus and Christianity tries and tell, uh, tries and tell, uh, tries to tell us to think of ourselves and our relationship to God. It tells us that we just need to work hard enough to do a little bit more to avoid certain things and be sure to do other certain things and surely we'll think well of ourselves, have high self-esteem, and most of all, that God will think well of us. Uh, back in 2019, Precious and I got to go to Thailand and we were in some of the same places that Luke and the team uh, went this last trip and we remember seeing these, these altars all over the place where people would come and offer food on a daily basis as an act of Buddhist piety. They thought by putting this food on this altar and praying certain prayers, that they were earning merit that would one day allow them to rise up the spiritual ladder and have a greater experience of the divine. It's not just Buddhism that does that. Every religion at its core tells you, you just gotta pray certain prayers, do certain rituals, you got to abstain from certain things and then you'll be right with God. But there's one problem, of course. If we try and stand before God with head held high, we'll never find what we truly need. And that's mercy. When we come to God with a list of people we're not like, we imagine that we aren't sinners in need of forgiveness. And when we come to God with a list of virtues that we have done, we find ourselves needing no help and certainly no imputed righteousness from Jesus. Uh, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not sure if you are, maybe you're just checking out Christianity and other religions and things. So I, I hope you feel welcome here this morning. We want you to be here. I hope you'll ask yourself this question. If, if you were to die today and you were to find your way up to heaven and God were to stop you at the entrance and ask you, why should I let you in? What would your answer be? Uh, would you reach for a list of people that you're not like? Oh, well, I, I'm not like those horrible terrorists that murder people. Well, well, I'm not like those selfish tax evaders. 
I'm not someone that causes harm to the planet. I'm not someone that indoctrinates children. I'm not someone that's a bad neighbor. I, I try to live a good life. You should let me in, God, because I'm not like all those other people. Maybe you'd make an argument like that. Or maybe your argument would be more positive. All your credentials of the things you have done. I've given to good charities. I've tried to be truthful. I've tried to be a faithful friend and spouse. Uh, maybe you even put your religious exercises into that same category. But friend, whether you're coming based on contrast to others or your supposed credentials, really it's the same thing that's happening. You're trying to enter the courts of heaven with your head held high, which is a recipe for the greatest disappointment of all. According to the Bible, there's not one that's righteous. Not a single one of us will be declared justified based on the standards of the holy and perfect God of heaven. That's just because even one sin carries with it the penalty deserving of eternal and forever death. According to the Bible, both by our ancestry and heritage, as well by our individual choices, we are all condemned sinners. But friend, there is another way to try and relate to God. It's not on the basis of your perceived merit. It's instead on the basis of mercy. Now, mercy is one of those words that sounds great. You actually have to stop and think for a second what it means. Uh, mercy, a good shorthand definition for it, is not receiving what you do deserve. Uh, if a judge should throw the book at you but decides not to, for whatever reason, that reason is an act of mercy. According to the Bible, it is possible for you to, to meet God and for that to be a wonderfully joy-filled day. But it won't be because of any merit that you have. It'll be wholly because you rely on the mercy that only he could provide. Uh, the message of the Bible, which is called the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that God has made a way for sinners of all types, yes, even your type, friend, to have their sins wiped away if they'll simply humble themselves and approach God with an empty hand seeking his mercy. Uh, that's possible because the man, Jesus, who told this parable gave up his life as a sacrifice sufficient for sinners of all types. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned a single time. He truly was not like any sinner out there. And he had the longest list of credentials before God that anyone could possibly have. A perfect record of righteousness. And yet Jesus allowed himself to be murdered brutally at the hands of the Romans so that his life could absorb the penalty that our sins deserve. And friend, if you come to God trusting the mercy of Jesus, you'll find the most amazing thing. You will be welcome before God, not as an enemy, but as a friend. Uh, Jesus didn't just die, he rose from the dead so that you could have confidence that if you do take him up on this offer and repent of your sins and trust him by faith, you'll find God 
to be your heavenly father. And you'll be welcome in the arms of your savior. Uh, Friend, you'll never find this salvation anywhere else. Uh, No amount of do-gooding or trying to learn how to live a better life will ever make you fit for the courts of heaven. But if you throw yourself on the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, you'll learn that truth that Martin Luther rediscovered 506 years ago, that there is salvation for sinners of all types, but it's through faith alone and grace alone in Christ alone. Uh, Friend, if you have never given your life to Christ and received that salvation after the service, I will be up front. I would love to walk you through how you can give your life to Jesus and know your soul will be saved. Now, for those of us here this morning that are Christians, uh, I hope you know that you have believed that message, that you've been living on the grace that has come to you through your faith in Jesus Christ each day since then. And remember that the gospel is not just something you hear once, something you need on an ongoing basis in your Christian walk. I love the way Tim Keller put it. Uh, The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z, the beginning to end of it. Uh, Certainly that's in the case when it comes to our individual walks with Jesus and our need to, on an ongoing basis, fight pride, so that we can have humble hearts. Um, If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll know that pride still resides in your heart. I'm sure you can think of something this week, if you take a a little time to reflect, of a way that you thought of yourself as better than someone else, or that you gave yourself a little spiritual pat on the back for doing something that was especially, especially virtuous. But when we remind ourselves again and again that we are only acceptable in the sight of God because of the mercy found in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we see that there's no room for pride because we've come to the foot of the cross. Uh, Brothers and sisters, you are not someone special that God is just so privileged to have be a part of his family. No, but you are loved and accepted. You are clothed in righteousness. It's just not your own. It's the righteousness of Jesus. So what you need to do is again and again, remind yourself of that truth so your heart would be humble and you would let God in due time lift you up. Uh, This is one of the reasons we as a church have this regular rhythm of confessing our sins in our prayer times. Maybe you've noticed that. Um, That's on purpose. We know that we need to discipline ourselves to be reminded of our failures and even our sins so that we can rely on the grace and mercy of Jesus. Uh, Now, when that happens, don't think that we're singling any particular one of you out. When I look out across the congregation, there's a wonderful democracy of what I see. There are sinners of all types. I'm right there with you. But all of us need to be brought low so we can allow the mercy and grace of Jesus to lift us up into greater heights of gratitude and thanksgiving. So we can really say, I thank you, God, but not because we're not like certain people, but because we've received from Jesus that which we've truly needed.
Now, let me just say that I think churches at times do fall into the ditch of being prideful together as a group. Uh, it's pretty easy to make up a list of churches we are not like. Uh, we thank God that we are not money-grubbing, performance-focused ministry. We thank God that we don't forget to preach the gospel Sunday after Sunday, that we have true, authentic fellowship. You know, you can come up with your list of things that you don't like in other churches and start being prideful about the fact that your church you think is different. You could do the same thing about the things you love about your church. Aren't we great because we have expository preaching? Aren't we wonderful because we just had, aren't we wonderful because we just had a week of prayer and fasting last week? I'm not saying for a second we shouldn't have ministry values and be strongly convinced of why we do things a certain way or another way. But we need to hear the warning Jesus is giving us here together. If we start having contempt toward other churches, somehow or the other we've lost our way. We've started to think we are above the need of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, oh, brothers and sisters, if we remember that we are simply sinners who have found mercy before a holy God, it'll make us wonderfully humble and it'll increase our gratitude and joy for what we have in Jesus. In just a second, we're gonna sing a song called Not In Me. I wanna draw your attention to some of the lyrics I think are especially fitting. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness lies not in me, but only you. Only the soul that is humbled before God will find salvation on the day that's coming. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bring us low so he can lift us up. Uh, Father, thank you for the great promises that we have in your word, and especially that there is mercy and grace for sinners of all types. Will you help us now to respond with gratitude, not trying to push off the reality of even our ongoing sinful state, but instead finding new gratitude and new joy that we have been justified, not based on merit, but wholly based on your mercy. Uh, Jesus, help us now to lift our hearts in worship, giving credit to you, the one who gets all the credit for our salvation. We pray these things in your gracious and merciful name. Amen.